Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, the podcast where each week we look at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Vischer, this is episode number 11 and we're recording this on the 1st of October 2009. With me as always is my co-host Grant McCarran. How are you going Grant? Not too bad mate, how are you doing over there? Well, just surviving another thrilling day of work on the railways, but uh, now we're here doing some uh, something that's actually quite interesting, and that's podcasting. I've been working on the railway. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> very, very sad. Very, very sad. And Grant, we've got a guest with us this week on the podcast from Adelaide, Baz Sheffers. Baz, yeah, I hope hey. I got I hope I got that name right, Baz. It's uh, it's close enough. It's it's what I teach people uh, to uh, how to pronounce it in English because if I want you to do the actual official pronunciation, you'd uh, probably get a sore throat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> having come from a Dutch uh, family, I should probably appreciate that. Yeah, Baz is a recreational pilot predominantly over there, and uh, we're going to have a little bit of a discussion tonight on a few issues that uh, surround the field of recreational aviation in this country, which we hope you find interesting. Cool, sounds great. Should make for a bit of fun. And don't worry, folks, we'll do our usual opinionated news review at the end of the discussion. Absolutely. Okay, Bass, well, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, what we know about you so far is you're from Adelaide, you fly out of Parafield, you have an Avecta sports star, and uh, you're not from around here, mate. No, I'm not. I, uh, I'm i a pretty recent import. Uh, to me, happened what uh, happened to so many unsuspecting European men. I, uh, I'm from the Netherlands. Uh, I moved to London for work, and what do you do when you go to London? You hang out with other people who uh, have just gotten there and are looking for friends and predominantly Australian. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, I met an Australian girl who is now my wife. And uh, about two and a half years ago, she uh, dragged me back here kicking and screaming. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, and you found uh, uh, much of a Dutch community over there in uh, South Australia, Bez? There's quite a sizable one here in Victoria. I know that. Uh, to be honest, I haven't been looking. I know there's a Dutch club uh, over here somewhere, but uh, uh, yeah, I haven't been, uh, haven't been looking. I haven't run into any other Dutch people so far over here. Cool. And uh, as we understand it, Bez, um, you were not a pilot, I think. Is that right, when you came here, but you've uh, started your uh, journey in aviation uh, since you arrived here on our shores? Absolutely. Uh, we were just talking about that uh, in the preparation, how the grass is always greener on the other side. <laughs> I can tell you it's a lot greener here than it is in Europe. Uh, I always wanted to uh, to fly, uh, and I did a lot of simming in my, uh, my early teens. But uh, to give you uh, an idea, last summer I was back in uh, the Netherlands, and I went flying with a friend who, uh, who owns a plane. And we went to fill up before we set off, and we paid €2.70 for a litre of Avgas. Ouch. Jeez. Yeah, that is, uh, depending on the exchange rate, uh, somewhere between four and a half and five dollars. A um, litre. So that, that kind of puts yeah. it in perspective sometimes when we uh, complain about fuel prices here. Yeah, and then you you know, you know add the things like weather, the location of uh, airfields, because uh, by the time I, it's a bit better in, in England, and by the time I lived in London, it was something that was uh, financially viable, but then, you know, I lived in the pretty central in London no car, and even if you had one, it would take you probably hours to get to the closest field where you could do training. So I, uh, I put it off for a little longer on knowing that uh, eventually I'd probably end up here and uh, I'd already sussed out what, was, uh, the, what the scene was like here a bit, and uh, it seemed worth waiting for. Cool. Well, for our American friends who may be listening in, uh, just to give you an idea, that uh, 4 or $5 Australian per litre uh, that equates to something like almost uh, what 15 to 20 US dollars a gallon, yeah. <laughs> Close to that, I'd say, yeah. Ouch. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't uh, <laughs> wouldn't power your average SUV for very long. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wouldn't. So uh, yeah, that's uh, when I when I got here. Uh, one of the first things I did was uh, find out where I could go flying. Um, so just about a year and a half ago, I started flying at Parafield. There is actually uh, one recreational uh, training facility at Parafield because you know it's a it's a GAP airfield where normally we're not welcome. But the uh, the school works on a special exemption from CASA. They're a GA school that uh, also had the uh, the Sports Star, and uh, so I started training there, which was a nice 15 minute drive for me instead of uh, hours, uh, as I would have had to Very do. Handy. Yeah, as I would have had to do in London. And uh, about a year later, you know, I started uh, flying just as you do once a weekend, every weekend for an hour. Uh, that's about all you can take in one training session. That's all the, the time time I had. So in uh, in just about a year, I managed to uh, get my recreational certificate, my passenger endorsement, and my cross-country endorsement, which uh, allows me to pretty much go anywhere. Excellent. Excellent. And um, was it price alone that sort of drew you, uh, Baz, to the recreational field uh, as opposed to perhaps, uh, you know, uh, going the line of uh, learning in a Cessna or something like that? It's uh, a few things. First of all, if you compare, uh, you know, a Cessna 152, which is often used for basic training, to something like the Vector Sportstar, there, I mean, there is no comparison. Um, the Sportstar is a lot bigger, and I'm, I'm not the smallest guy in the world. Uh, it performs better. It's a lot more. It's nicer, more modern, and uh, and on top of that, it costs less. So that was a pretty easy decision uh, for me to make. Just, just out of interest, uh, because it's, it's not actually a field that I've ever really looked too closely into. Um, you say it's a cost-effective. What would you be looking at by comparison? I, I believe, for instance, um, if you were to come here to Moorabbin and, and hire, say, a Cessna 172, you'd be looking at around probably $180 an hour. Uh, yeah. Um, it, it varies very much with the location and the type of aircraft. Uh, for instance, if you wanted to hire the Sportstar at Parafield, uh, uh, the wet rate an hour is 145 at the moment. But by comparison, uh, a friend of mine is currently down in Victoria. He was uh, flying a uh, Texan, which is very similar to the Sportstar from uh, Turretin, if I pronounce it correctly. Turretin, yeah, just down the road from my place, actually. Yeah, and he's paying <laughs> he's paying 100 bucks an hour for that. Um, for wow. uh, hire and fly, and of course down there you've got none of the uh, none of the delays that you nowadays get at uh, at some of the busier airfields like uh, Morabin. Yeah, uh, cheaper so, landing fees and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm not sure if they've even got any landing fees there. A lot of the, the the smaller fields just don't have any landing fees. For instance, we've got a very busy training fields here, uh, Aldinga and Murray Bridge, and and they have no landing fees, so anyone can can drop in any time. Um, which is uh, yeah, it's fantastic, and there's always uh, always people around. So there's a, a good community. Yeah, I know Turidan over here. They've been quite active in the recreational field. Now I think about it, probably I should look down there a bit more often. It's only about 20 minutes from my house. Yeah, no, it's uh, it is uh, it's it's. Uh, I've heard it's a fantastic place from the, the my friend who's uh, who's been down there in the past few weeks. Okay, that's pretty interesting. So, uh, what's it like flying out of Parafield, um, hobnobbing it in the you're there in the Sports Star, and you're hobnobbing it with some reasonably powerful aircraft? Yeah, it's a bit annoying actually because the powerful aircraft they uh, tend to make very wide turns, and you, you they really slow you down. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, they might be faster, but they slow you down because uh, if I'm alone in the circuit in the Sportstar, 
uh, off the deck, you're getting about 1,200 feet a minute. So you're turning uh, from from this. You know, if you do your first takeoff, you're you're turning crosswind before the runway's even ended. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, huh. And and you turn base uh, also very close to the runway, steep approach, and it's it's actually very fast going around the circuit that way. But if you get a a, a grob uh, from uh, one of the uh, the training facilities there in front of you. Uh, they they try and teach them airline training as well, and they think they're they're flying a 737 already and they're flying the circuit accordingly. Uh, that can can be a bit annoying. Yeah, the two mile circuit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but other than that, it's uh, flying out of parafield is actually uh, quite nice. Uh, we're not as busy as say Jendakot or Morabin. Um, so we don't get the huge delays for getting into the circuit that, you know, with uh, the new changes uh, that have recently come in uh, are really starting to affect those places. Yeah. Um, and, you know, short taxi uh, to to get to the runways. And uh, the GAP procedures uh, are actually very simple. Um, so they don't slow you down. They don't put too much of a burden on you. You get in and out real easy and i actually like the fact that uh, that there's a tower there who's uh, who's helping you out with uh, keeping things separated of course uh, you're uh, you're responsible for that ultimately but uh, it's uh, it's nice to have an extra set of eyes and uh, and, and ears yeah and no, I, I know when i was flying out of Morabin, it was uh, it was also fun working with the tower and uh, sliding in with them and so on but the last time I flew there, it was getting pretty hectic and, and busy, and now they've brought in the six aircraft per runway for the circuits if there's a single controller and things like that. So, yeah, it's all changed a bit since I was there. Yeah, I, I quite enjoy uh, controlled airspace, actually. Uh, normally, recreational, again, isn't allowed in controlled airspace unless you've got a PPL. But uh, this the same school that is still the operator of the aircraft um, with the exemption and all the training. I've, I've, I've had the exact same training as any GA pilot that is trained there, any PPL uh, that's trained there has. Um, so because of that and flying under the control of, of that operator, I'm actually allowed into any controlled airspace. So on my way down to Aldinga, I, uh, I just file a plan and go straight over the city, which is a very nice flight and a bit of a shortcut as well. And just working with the controller is uh, it's a bit of a challenge, but it's uh, you know it's rewarding just doing it right, getting it right, and uh, it's good good learning experience. Okay, cool. Well, of course, that whole gap situation is, is likely to change. Uh, the latest news that we're seeing is related to gap aircraft, um, airports becoming Class D. Uh, Steve, you were um, talking to us about that beforehand. Yeah, I found an article in uh, Australian Flying Magazine this, this month, which is uh, talking about the decision by CASA to uh, abolish gap procedures at a number of airfields around Australia, those being Archerfield, Bankstown, Camden, Jandicott, Moorabbin and Parafield. And uh, they'll be changing those to uh, Class D airspace, which will basically be much more tightly controlled airspace than the gap procedures. The gap procedures have been around since the late 70s here and are kind of unique in the way they operate. I guess there's been a couple of uh, incidents, particularly at Moorabbin uh, last year when they had a, uh, an air-to-air collision resulting in a couple of uh, fatalities, which has really brought this to a head. Um, some interim measures they've brought in, which, you know, we could probably have a debate here about whether whether they're um, effective, whether they're good or bad, 
as you said, Grant, one of the limitations they brought in here is a maximum of six aircraft in any one circuit controlled by any one tower controller. Also, they're requiring now an immediate requirement for all aircraft to obtain a clearance to cross or taxi along any runway, whether it's active or not, and uh, also providing the provision of uh, aerodrome air traffic services every day during daylight hours without any reduction in the service currently provided after dark. Well, yeah. I mean, I'd have some opinions there because, I mean, full tower services at Moorabbin is something that we used to have and were taken away from us back in the 90s. Certainly the Moorabbin Tower doesn't operate with the sort of staffing levels now that it, it did when I started flying back in 89 or 1990. So, um, yeah, to, to bring staffing levels back up is a good idea. But the idea of having uh, or limiting uh, circuits, well, the number of aircraft in a circuit to six aircraft, particularly, I don't know, Baz, how it would be, how busy it is at Parafield. I know here at, um, at Moorabbin, that could potentially cause trouble. We have a lot of uh, training schools here and a lot of international students training for the airlines predominantly here. Um, limiting the number of aircraft in the circuit that way, that's probably going to be causing issues. For instance, is it, is it causing congestion at uh, inbound reporting points for aircraft waiting to come in to do circuits or even just to get back into land? I think uh, it depends on the the, uh, the airfield. I think Parafield probably isn't as busy as Moorabbin. And the uh, the most I've ever found myself in the circuit with was six, and that was you know very brief. Uh, during a busy period, I was turned down when I was told I'm number five, so I assumed there was uh, someone on the runway already, which would have become number six. Um, but uh, in the in the forums, you you do hear about the problems at at Morebin where people have been. Uh, waiting and of course while the engine's running paying the hourly rate in the aircraft uh, for uh, you know 20 minutes before they finally could do some circuits and instead of doing the full hour of circuits as they used to after uh, after half an hour they were told to uh, make it a full stop so someone else could have a go fortunately that doesn't seem to be happening at Parafield yet but it's uh, it certainly uh, seems to be a problem at uh, at Morabin which I, I would assume is one of the uh, the busiest uh, gaps in uh, in Australia uh, as for uh, the problems at uh, uh, the inbound points. Uh, my experience here with Parafield is that, that we have one runway uh, with single engine circuits and one with uh, multi engine circuits. And uh, they usually, if there's a very high performance uh, uh, single, they, they might put them there as well. And usually what happens to, to us is uh, whatever runway, if, if you're coming in from the east, you're supposed to be landing on the runway that's also used for single-engine circuits. What usually happens is that the multi-engine runway is a lot less crowded, and they just tell you to change runway and, and often land on the two-one right in the, instead of left. And that kind of takes care of that problem because it doesn't put an extra aircraft in the circuit on uh, the single-engine circuit runway, which is, uh, is, is usually the busiest. Yeah. You know, I know at Moorabbin uh, there's been uh, – so I was seeing reports that you needed to actually call for permission to start your engine before heading out to make sure you could slot in and weren't wasting so much time waiting yes, to go. Yes, uh, that's here yeah. at Parafield as well. The the new uh, rules are uh, that clearance is required for circuit operations, not for anything else if you want to do a departure. I have been told actually, which uh, which was interesting, that uh, I want to do a departure and I called that I was did, just did my taxi call because obviously I didn't need clearance, told them I was going to 2-1 left. And they uh, they told me to uh, take uh, uh, two one right instead, which uh, and and then told me to uh, just extend uh, upwind 
before uh, making the turn uh, around the other circuit, really, uh, just to make sure that uh, the yeah that circuit wasn't getting too full. Well, I know at, on the subject of the reporting points, I know definitely at Bankstown where they, uh, I think Bankstown is the busiest one in Australia, and they they uh, have definitely had one maybe two uh, mid airs in recent times up there, and what's been happening is the. Uh, six aircraft per circuit rule, even though they've got the three run- runways at Bankstown, has dramatically in- increased the congestion at the reporting areas. And there's a lot of talk that the fact that Bankstown has so few VFR reporting points to come in is what caused a couple of those uh, mid-airs to begin with because there was so- such a concentration of aircraft at those points and now it's getting even worse. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, one of the... Uh the Bankstown ones, uh, the mid-air last year, uh, was definitely right at the reporting point. And right. uh, I'm, I'm always very cautious of these reporting points myself here as well, because like I said, uh, the moment you're at that reporting point, you make your inbound call. But until then, everyone is uncontrolled and you really have to keep your eyes out. And uh, uh, sometimes uh, it can get a bit, a little bit, uh, bit scary even. I, I Someone recently made the wrong call and he said he was uh, inbound from the damn wall, whereas he should be inbound from substation. Uh, just at the moment that I was outbound at the damn wall, so I was like, where the hell is this guy? And fortunately, he just said the wrong place. We were, he was actually in the right spot. Uh, but you you got to keep your, your eyes and ears open for what's happening. Oh, yeah. We we had an interesting one uh, back in April. I went off for a bit of a bit of an aerobatic jolly in the uh, in the Alpha. And uh, we were coming back in uh, to Moorabbin and we were inbound at uh, GMH. And we were right over the GMH factory. We knew where we were. We could see it. It was very clear. The guy I was flying with was uh, one of the instructors out of Royal Vic. And uh, we've just done our call. And within a, about 30 seconds or so, there's another person saying inbound at GMH at the same altitude as us. Well, you know, you can't help it. What goes through your head? But holy crap, this could be an air-to-air. And even in that bubble canopy, we were just going looking everywhere. We are thinking maybe he's under us or something like that. And then finally we spot him. And he was about three nautical miles off to the right. <laughs> it was like, okay, you're not quite there, are you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's not uncommon to come into Morab. And I remember uh, when I was a student pilot there, and you'd be coming inbound uh, because the training area is to the east of, of the airfield. You're often coming in on the east circuit, which is uh, the busier of the two. You know, you call in a GMH, and it would, wouldn't be uncommon for them to uh, instruct you to uh, join base. And you'd be looking for traffic coming down on the downwind. Yeah. And uh, sometimes that traffic, particularly in uh, poorer light conditions, you know, it, it can get a bit hairy. I, I can think of a number of occasions where I've been coming in to uh, join on base and having to basically do an orbit to keep out of the way of an aircraft that um, either I had lost sight of through lack of experience at the time or, you know, maybe uh, the separation wasn't, uh, you know, done in such a manner that was envisaged when the instruction was made. So it, it can be a little bit hairy at times. You, you do have to keep your wits about you at, at places um, like that when they're busy, that's for sure. Yeah, no, it, it does get interesting. And the, the issue with Morabin and that GMH reporting point is that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was pretty easy to see where you're at. I remember even five years ago how it was finding GMH and I was thinking, wow, this is a bit difficult. And the instructor said, you know, it's still kind of easy. But even now, everyone's saying it's just so built up. That what used to stick out like a like a sore toe uh, is now built up and there's uh, industrial and residential all around the area. And it's a lot harder to find places now for those reporting points. 
The airport mentioned there that I found interesting was uh, Jandicott over there in Perth. Um, I'd be interested in hearing from any of our listeners that are over on that side of the country uh, just how busy is it over there at uh, Jandicott. I, I wouldn't have perhaps thought, and you know, this is from a position of complete ignorance, I just don't know how busy it would be there and, and does it really warrant uh, being included in these rule changes? Baz, do you know much about Jandicott? Very little, other than that I've heard that it can get quite busy, but that's uh, that's all hearsay. I've never actually been there. So, uh, yeah, anybody uh, from uh, who's listening over in the West and uh, could uh, perhaps send us some feedback, uh, yeah, we'd appreciate that. It'd be uh, interesting to know. Yeah, definitely feedback or come and join us like Bass is doing right now and we'll happily have a chat with anyone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the one thing about this is this whole conversion from GAP to uh, – well, for those who don't know, GAP means General Aviation Aerodrome Procedures. I'm not sure if we mentioned that already. Uh, we just know it as GAP here, so that's what everyone says it. Mind the GAP. But uh, if it co- changes to Class D, that's going to be happening um, April 21st, 2010. So we have a little way to go. And I know Australian Flying is talking about having a bigger discussion about this in uh, their next issue, which is the November-December issue. So, yeah, I think um, and people are just wondering what GAP is. Basically what it is, it's a, it's a tower-controlled environment, but separation for aircraft, aircraft separation primarily rests still with the pilots. Um, now, I think changing it to Class D airspace changes that dynamic a little. Uh, basically, separation will be uh, more strictly controlled by air traffic control rather than by the pilots. Yeah, I haven't flown in Class D yet. And I, for Parafield, and I've been talking to some you know, more experienced people there, uh, we'll have to wait and see what it actually means for us because I can't really see all that much changing. Because, of course, Class D, for those who don't know, is is controlled but not uh, using radar so um, it's still just you talking to the the tower uh, one of the things we'll have to do is uh, instead of announcing that we're at the uh, reporting point uh, we actually have to request clearance but if that's just a a procedural thing and doesn't really change the uh, what the, the what happens remains to be seen. Yeah, there's certainly going to be more uh, radio traffic by the sound of it uh, in, in Class D airspace. Basically, all flights are subject to an ATC clearance. The VFR is given traffic information and uh, IFR flights are, um, are more actively controlled. It'll be interesting to see because normally when you enter controlled airspace, of course, you, uh, uh, for instance, if, if I'm entering uh, Adelaide airspace, I call Adelaide Approach and request the clearance. Uh, when I now come back from Class G into uh, Parafield, I just get straight into the tower frequency and I n- announce I'm there. So I'm wondering, am I going to have to ask uh, uh, another approach controller, an area controller, uh, for clearance to actually enter Parafield and then talk to the tower? It's, uh, that sounds to me like um, that, that's the way it will be set up. Um, what we ought to do, Grant, is to get uh, a a couple of flight instructors on here to uh, have a discussion about this maybe in an upcoming episode very shortly. Yeah, I think we can arrange that. Well, and also after our session with uh, the Royal Royal Vic Aero Club for the Dawn Patrol, we uh, were hanging out with a couple of extra um, instructors. So, yeah, it'd be definitely good to get them in and have a chat with them. Sounds sounds uh, sounds useful. Indeed. But I think, I think also uh, 
CASA doesn't really know exactly what they're doing yet because there's also a difference between uh, FAA Class D and uh, and the international Class D, uh, which has slightly different procedures. Yeah, so, actually, um, yeah, over in the US, well, of course, I've been out of the flying game for for a, you know, quite some years. When I was learning to fly there, they didn't, they weren't using ICAO standards over there either. But they've gone to a, to an alphabet airspace system themselves. You're right. Uh, I'm not actually up on uh, the way that's organised. That that sort of happened after I left there. So. Well, yeah, I thought Australia was using the standard ICAO Class D definition. Yeah, Australia is, but uh, I don't. Yeah. I'm not sure that they. Well, they may be, but I'm not sure that they're doing that in the US. Though they may yeah. have some uh, some uh, variations that they use. Yeah, well, and the CASA is is hinting very much that for the f- what will then be the former GAP aer- aerodromes, they're looking towards using the uh, something close to the FAA. Uh, that also makes the the whole point of GAP is a specific Australian thing a bit moot because if you're not going okay. to use the international class D but some local version of it you're you know you still got something that's local yeah you you've just gone from local to local and hey even more confusion because now it's different yeah now right. now it doesn't even have a different name anymore so you expect it to be something but it's not well that that does sort of lead us on to the uh, the new industry uh, the Australian Aviation Associations Forum um, as informally tagged as the forum <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's a new body that's uh, just been set up that's uh, aiming at providing a more unified response to government moves to introduce operational changes. Uh, we've got this in an article by <clears throat> Steve Creedy from the uh, Australian newspaper. Yeah, Grant, this article uh, appeared on the 25th of September uh, talking about this uh, forum. It says a diverse group of aviation industry players has formed a new body aimed at providing a more unified response to government moves to introduce operational changes. The Australian Aviation Associations Forum, informally tagged at the forum, involves aviation groups representing sectors of the industry ranging from agricultural and recreational pilots to engineers and airlines, and it hopes to provide governments with an independent sounding board on policy issues. Uh, It says here also they've already met several times in the issues within its sites include changes to general aviation aerodrome or gap airports, regulatory reform and the lack of government support for aviation manufacturing. Well, uh, guys, that's a, uh, a, a pretty wide range of interests yeah. for them to uh, be covering but uh, there's some interesting ones there. Of course, we've already talked about the gap decision but uh, lack of government support for aviation manufacturing. That's probably an interesting talking point. And I say that, Grant, from the standpoint you and I were talking in a recent episode about uh, I made a comment that there really isn't much of a manufacturing um, yeah. And industry, in, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't much of a manufacturing base in this country, and you jumped down my throat about it. But uh, well, uh, of I didn't course, jump down your throat. I jumped on it because <laughs> you got Gippsland Aeronautics. Because we got Gippsland Supermarine. Um, you've Jabiru. got yeah, Jabiru up in Queensland, uh, doing engines and aircraft. The new two thirty that uh, Owens up is going to be flying around the country. Things like that. Yeah, and I, and I guess that's. I guess is. I mean, is that's probably what they're more looking at is a more sort of uh, a, a more support for smaller manufacturers. I mean, we're never going to have an industry the size of, say, Cessna or a Piper over here. Well, I think they're also perhaps more looking at the um, Embraer model in Brazil and the fact that Australia has tried again and again with, you know, government aircraft factory, the um, various, the CACs and so on. Um, Commonwealth, that's Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation, I think it was. Um, uh, but we've had all this manufacturing knowledge and it's just gone uh, we haven't really taken it to anywhere beyond the Nomad and so on. Yes, we do have the, the Whitney Boomerang, which is going great guns. The Jabiru is, is doing amazing results, as is the uh, Gippsland Aeronautics GA Airvan and so on. Uh, 
there are there's also a few like the supermarine company building spitfire replicas uh, as kits and uh, things like that so there is there is a level of manufacturing here but if you speak to people involved in it and read the articles and so on the general general feeling about it is that it's more by accident and despite the government's best efforts we've managed to do this i think you got to be realistic here as well that you know population australia 20 million population brazil you know embraer model 200 million um yep i think you'll find that very few small countries would have a manufacturer that's that's you know manufacturing jet airliners the netherlands used to have fokker aircraft and there's a fair few still flying around here but I think in a country such as such as this, it's it's hard to compete on on scale. It's hard to compete on wages, and uh, it's only when you get the combined investment from, uh, say, a huge country in the U.S. or something like Airbus in Europe, uh, which gets a lot of government support as well, but is you know is a commercially viable uh, manufacturer. That's the only real way to do that. And I think for uh, the aircraft that Australia is building, they're they're doing they're doing pretty well. And I think that. That's partly because there is such a, a need for that kind of aircraft in the country itself. And uh, it turns out that uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of other people are brought uh, by enough models to, to make it viable. Yeah, I think when you're talking about the local population here, I believe if they wanted to expand the, the light aircraft and recreational aircraft, for that matter, manufacturing base in this country, they, they'd really have to look, look at the same sort of model that, say, uh, General Motors in this country does, and that's basically gearing everything or a large percentage of their manufacturing towards exports. Uh, that's certainly the, the only way, really, I believe the cars and car industry has survived in any fashion in this country, and that's probably the way that, that the light aircraft uh, industry would have to look to, I think. Yeah. And there's there's some very good points being made that uh, there is no replacement for the 50 seat turboprop really 30 to 50 seat market. You know, the, the, what have you got? The Saab stopped the Saab 2000. Oh, Bombardier is going bigger and bigger, and are now talking about stretching the Q400 to take it to a hundred seat turboprop, which is going to look really long and thin. Yeah. Um, you know, you, all this kind of stuff is going on, but that whole middle layer all around the world doesn't exist, and that was the kind of thing that people were saying, well, if we had have still had that Australian aviation industry, they could have jumped on it. But you know, you've got a point, Baz, there's not enough people here. But as Steve's saying, you, you focus on the um, on the export market, and that's what Embraer is doing. They're selling most of their stuff overseas. So, yes, having a, a reasonably large or, um, country with enough people does help. But don't forget a lot of the people in Brazil are living way below what we would consider the poverty line. Exactly, and that's uh, that's hard to compete with. Uh, in terms of getting cheap labour? Yeah. Yeah, but cheap labour for building aircraft needs to be skilled up. And once it becomes skilled up, it becomes worth poaching. And you see that if you look at the IT industry around Asia. At first, you've got the cheap labour doing stuff, but then they start to become skilled up. They get picked up by other groups. And what was the country for doing everything on the cheap in five to ten years is now, well, you know, just another country. No, absolutely, and it's, but I think there's. Uh, I'm not talking, of course, about cheap labour. Not, not envisioning sweatshops uh, where people <laughs> build aircraft parts, uh, but to, to, a, uh, to uh, you know a, a company that that is you know going to employ tens of thousands of people 
a uh, a three dollar an hour wage difference actually makes a makes a huge difference because you you don't think it's that much until you you know add it all up and uh, it turns out to be uh, several uh, dozens of millions a year for the shareholders um, and that's uh, I'm I'm not a big big fan of outsourcing for that reason I'm, I reckon you know if a company can make a profit then it makes profit all the all the bills are paid and everything else is uh, you know is extra. Uh, but that's unfortunately how a lot of these uh, these manufacturers and the people that I- invest in this kind of uh, industry seem to think. I mean, on a larger scale, you're looking at Cessna and even Airbus now moving to China for uh, some facets of their manufacturing. So, you know, they're obviously doing that for the same sorts of reasons. Like China is, a, is obviously a booming market, but obviously, too, that's another example of where the where the physical act of, of putting nuts and bolts and panels together um, to get the labour to do that sort of stuff, it's it's far, far cheaper to do it there, and we just could never compete with that here. True, true. Skilled or no skilled, it's cheaper there. Yeah. You know what, what one of my pet peeves about the, uh, the uh, light aviation market is, especially a recreational one? Go for it. There's too much competition. It means that nobody, because there's so many manufacturers all around the world, no one's building in a volume where the costs go down. Yeah, but they, they say that's going to shake out in the next two to three years, That the, the 100 different uh, recreational aviation manufacturers, well, the ones that are uh, registered in the US anyhow, that, that have products in the US from around the world, they reckon that'll come down to just a handful pretty quickly. That, that'd be good. I mean, if you look at Jabiru, Jabiru is one of the few that actually does a, a fair amount of volume, and their aircraft are just a, a lot less expensive than a, a lot of the competition while having the same kind of performance and reliability and, and just finishing. Yeah. And, and, and as an example, uh, they're a good example too because they are pretty actively marketing over in the US, for example. It would be interesting to see just what percentage of their uh, manufacturing is headed overseas. Well, I, I'd, be, I'd be tipping it to be a reasonable amount. I know they've built thousands of engines, uh, like I think so, something like 5,000 at one point. But, they uh, seem to, you know, if you listen to uh, UCAP, uh, they, they, they get mentioned over there quite often, for example. So um, they're obviously, if they're coming onto the radar of those guys um, and they're, they're an advocate for recreational aviation, um, you know, that's obviously, they're obviously making some inroads. Yeah, especially yeah. in their engine market in the US where uh, you've, you've really, in the recreational aircraft uh, engines, you know, they have to be light yet powerful and there's not that much uh, choice in, in that there's a there's a few uh, uh, automotive conversions although a lot of those weigh in pretty heavily and uh, if you're doing a home-built uh, LSA uh, as they're known there you're looking at either a Jabiru or a Rotex really well so yeah some people you were saying about the um, the vehicle conversion ones like the Volkswagen and the Subaru uh, two common ones yeah and they're, they're, they're nice engines. I mean, uh, some of them are done shoddy, but there's some really good uh, good people manufacturing uh, them and selling complete kits and for very good price, and they, they're very reliable. But they can they tend to be heavier than, say, a Rotex or a Jabiru 2200. There's also the uh, crowd, I think they're down here in um, Victoria, down near Melbourne, the, the Rotex, not, Rotec rather, not Rotax. Yeah, uh, but that's a very cool. specialized engine. Yeah, it's a rotary. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it looks good, but you have to have oh. the right kind of airplane for it. Yeah, well, any aircraft that can handle a rotary is the right kind of aircraft. Sorry, guys, but uh, <laughs> I'm old school with it like that. I love a rotary. 
And uh, people should know that Grant, in fact, does drive a rotary engine vehicle. So we... Well, there is that in my car. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Different type of rotary. Uh, yeah, I yeah. guess. I think, I think okay. it's more of called a radial engine. Uh, they, they, they used to be called rotaries as well. And I think the, to try and distinguish between the uh, the Wankel rotary engines like you find in the, in the Mazdas, um, yeah, this, these are radial, radial engines now. With the AAAF, they're, they're pointing out that uh, – the Australian Aviation Council fell flat previously because it couldn't get everyone on board because uh, they were trying to do too much too soon, which is interesting given our comment about how much the um, AAAF is trying is tr- sort of trying to discuss and cover all the different groups. But uh, there is a need to bring all the disparate groups within aviation uh, together to present a common voice to the government here in Australia because there's, there's a lot of discussion about infrastructure this, infrastructure that, and everyone talks road rail. There's there's no real discussion about aviation despite how critical it is for the infrastructure here in Australia. So so having the AAAF in place, I, I think, has a lot of potential. It's going to be very interesting to see where it's going. And one of the first things they are talking about is what we've been talking about before, which is the changes to GAP procedures and uh, where it's all going. So I think it's going to be quite interesting to see how how they're able to bring everyone together to present to the government a, a common voice about what needs to be done. Well, they've certainly got some uh, some heavy hitters there. The chairman here, I note, is uh, the former Qantas chief pilot, Chris Manning, uh, quite a well-known pilot in this country for sure. Yeah, definitely. If anybody is going to uh, have a shot at being able to bring all these groups together, I'm sure uh, Chris Manning is uh, one of the people who will have a great shot at doing it, for sure. Indeed. What do you reckon, Vaz? Uh, interesting to watch the AAAF? Absolutely. There's a lot of, uh, of course, the recreational aviation being a, uh, a self-regulating body under the leadership of, of CASA. It, it, there's, well, there's a form needed for that almost already. I mean, uh, we need to get uh, uh, these uh, all the changes that are coming through because there's constantly changing changes to the rules for recreational as well. And uh, it'd be nice if we can align those with uh, the needs of other organisations as well. Well, recreation, obviously, you know, like in many other parts of the world, recreational aviation is is fast becoming a, a big big industry and um, it, it, you know a large sector of the industry. And they're going to have an increasingly loud voice as time goes on. So they certainly need to pay uh, a lot of attention now in these formative years to uh, make sure that they're um, included in uh, discussion for rules and regulations and all that sort of thing. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And uh, I think that gives us a good segue to talk more about recreational aviation here in Australia. And so, Baz, you're our first person we've had on who is actually a RAOS pilot. Uh, we've got a couple other friends that we're lining up to discuss various other things who are going through their uh, RAOS learning there and um, in the middle of their instruction but uh, how about we have a chat about uh, everything RAOs and what it means to you and so on. Okay well for those who uh, don't really know much about uh, Recreational Aviation Australia it's uh, it's an uh, an organization that uh, it, that administers really the the light aircraft in uh, recreational aircraft in Australia. It, it really grew out of the ultra, the original ultralight move, movement, uh, you know, the, the trikes, uh, just the powered uh, hang gliders, uh, uh, that sort of uh, uh, that sort of flying, which years ago, you couldn't even get a license for, you were allowed to do it, but only up to about 300 feet, and you weren't allowed to cross any major roads. And of course, uh, over the years, the more affordable planes uh, got more powerful and more capable. And uh, so from the ultralights, it, it grew into recreational aviation. And 
it, it spans a, a really broad range. It, it still spans everything from the, the single-seater, uh, pretty much powered hang gliders to uh, aircraft that, uh, like I, I mentioned before, just simply outperform a lot of the, the light GA aircraft like the you know the Cessna 1 uh, 152 yep. um so it's it's a very broad range which which uh actually in my opinion sort of get a little bit too broad because uh I simply have different needs and desires from people that are still flying those single engine a uh, single uh, seat powered hang gliders yeah the weight the weight shift end of RAOs but I find it quite interesting that uh the recreational aviation australia's website the URL to it is actually AUF as an Australian Ultralight Federation, so it's quite it, it, clear it grew from that. Yeah, it, it it both work now. I think they're they're uh, the official one is now raa.asn.au, uh, but the uh, AUF one uh, definitely uh, still works, and Google uh, often f- serves that one up if you're if you're looking for anything to do with uh, recreational. Recreational and, Aviation Australia. Boom. AUF.asn.au. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one of the and what I personally really like about it is that we now do have these aircraft with these capabilities that are very close to the, the lighter end of, of GA or even outperform them. A lot of the, the aircraft we fly nowadays are uh, very nice cruising aircraft. You can you know be comfortable in them for hours and actually get somewhere and uh, at a lot lower cost than uh, uh, the uh, similar performing GA aircraft. The only limitation is really two seats and there's a weight limitation on how much they can can, can weigh. And there is talk about that going up. But uh, to me, even that, that weight increase seems a bit pointless because uh, uh, some of the uh, light GA aircraft, like the Cessna 152, uh, that would be included in the new rules, again, they're just heavier aircraft. They don't, they're, they're not heavier because they have better performance or allow you to carry uh, more fuel and, and more people on board. And in fact, quite the opposite. If uh, In my sports star, for instance, you can carry full fuel. And I've got the older one, which only gives you, you know, a three and a half hour range or almost four hours and 200 kilograms worth of pilot. Try and do that in a Cessna 152. Uh, yeah. It's just not going to fit. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. That's, that's what a lot of people are saying. You know, they talk about, oh, no. I want my four-seat Cessna. I want my 172. Oh, it's a real aircraft. And, and yeah, if, if you're going to carry more than two people, you've got to offload a lot of stuff. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've, uh, I've flown a 172, and uh, I have to say it's, uh, it, uh, it's a better cruising aircraft, no doubt. I mean, you get a bit more speed up, and you can throw some stuff in the back and even throw some, some uh, you know, smaller people in the back. Uh, but for just uh, going, uh, staying local... And just flying it with two people, uh, you can do it for a lot less money and uh, with a lot uh, with you know higher performance. Uh, maybe not cruise speed compared to 172. Uh, definitely not cruise speed compared to 172, but uh, just just uh, climb speed, uh, rate of climb, and uh, just comfort and and cost. It's uh, it's a lot more effective. What I find interesting too, and I was looking at a number of these aircraft at Avalon this year when I was there. And uh, as I said before, I've ne- it's not really a sector of the of the industry I've paid that much attention to in the past. Uh, mainly, I guess, because you know, for, for a lot of us, you know, there's probably a bit of a stigma attached even to the concept of ultralights. But when you're having a look at the way the technology has improved now, and um, one of the things that really struck 
struck me was the equipment level, the avionics, the standard of the avionics in these aircraft now has improved out of sight. I'm just looking on the Evector website now at a, a, a cockpit layout, and um, there's there's not one gauge in there that you wouldn't find, say, for instance, in a 172. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's uh, uh, Although that one, I have to say, is VH registered, but uh, Warwickmobile Aero Club in Victoria has a uh, very nice uh, sports star that is uh, uh, night VFR equipped. Uh, wow. It's got it's got the uh, the glass panels in it, and of course all the backup instruments that are required, and they use it for uh, for night VFR uh, training. And of course, that one is VH registered; it's not recreational anymore because you couldn't do night VFR in a uh, recreational. Uh, that's one of the, also one of the limitations. But they they are very capable aircraft, and one of the nice things about them is is that we can use things like the Dynon glass cockpit systems, which uh, as primary instruments even. Um, uh, which means that we can get you know, glass for a fraction of the price uh, that yeah. you would get in a GA aircraft. Because it doesn't have to be fully certified. Exactly. And and uh, when it comes to GA, CASA is actually quite uh, leading in the world in this regard, where uh, you can actually put uncertified secondary instruments in a certified aircraft. So if you've got you know your Cessna 152 with all your steam gauges, if you want to have a, 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 a Dynan, uh, glass panel in it, and you, you can get the uh, an engineer to to install it and and sign it off. You can actually use that, but it it is a uh, secondary instrument only. Whereas a lot of the uh, newer uh, recreational aircraft are flying uh, with the Dynons as uh, primary instruments. Yep. Now, one I know one of the limit perceived limitations of uh, the recreational aircraft is, uh, for instance, a friend of ours is learning to fly on a fly synthesis stork. And I'm looking at the uh, its weight capabilities, and I'm thinking, well, okay, I, with my boots on, I'm 110 kilos, and because uh, I'm about I'm over six foot, so you know, there's a little bit of body mass here. Uh, I'd have to have a really, really, really light instructor to be able to get two of us in that plane with a bit of fuel for a couple of hours. Well, not as light as you'd uh, have to have it uh, in a 152, probably. Actually, I, I don't know the specific of the stork, but uh, my Sports Star is uh, limited to 550 kilos. Uh, well, its empty weight is uh, 305. So by the time you put 65 uh, liters of fuel in there, you you, know, you lose another 45. So uh, you basically, you got 200 kilos left. Now I'm I'm uh, not uh, the smallest myself, and uh, we're probably very equal in in weight and uh, height by the sounds of it. Uh, <laughs> I don't have a problem fighting instructor because I can have another 90 kilos worth of uh, instructor sitting next to me. Yeah, that does help. I must admit, my 152 days, my instructors were normally pretty light. <laughs> yeah, well, mine have been uh, have been as well, uh, which is uh, although I have flown with a couple of uh, couple of uh, bigger blocks, but a lot of them, uh, my initial instructors uh, were very small women, <laughs> and uh, they of course had no problems with teaching anyone in a 152. But uh, it's uh, I don't even I, I don't think I'd even fit with them in a 152, not weight wise, but just size wise. Uh, I find look, it very very cramped. <laughs> one of my instructors, Josh, who's now a cop, he's trying it and gone off to become a policeman he um <laughs> you'd be sitting there flying and it'd be like whoever had control would have their shoulder in front of the other person so they could yeah. get to the the, the uh, throttle yeah it was just a, a joke <laughs> it doesn't surprise me at all yeah. and uh you you find that there's a there's a big range in uh, recreational aircraft and you'll find that some will have lesser capabilities and be more cramped and you'll find uh, that there's aircraft like the sports star especially in the newer des- uh, designs which 
allowed to take 600 kilograms, so you got an extra 50 to play with there. Yeah. You can actually take, uh, uh, you know, two big blocks sitting side by side without uh, really rubbing their shoulders or getting in each other's way, and yep. uh, carry a, you know, a good uh, weekend uh, uh, bag of. Uh, supplies for uh, you know going away for a weekend as well see this is one of the things i really like about raos is that it does cover the gamut from you know single person wake sh- weight shift trikes all the way up so if all you want to do is get in the air and stooge around the local area and have a bit of fun and come back and land and woo-hoo, you've had your your aviation jolly the raos has got you covered if you want to have a couple of people in and, and actually go somewhere you know admittedly with just a shaving kit but still go somewhere you can do it um, i've done it i've i've my first trip I mean you read if you read the magazine you, there's always trip reports of people going oh, all yeah. over Australia and the Jabiroos and uh, my first long trip after I got my uh, uh, my uh, uh, pilot certificate uh, was uh, my sister was over from uh, from Europe and uh, we decided to fly to Broken Hill and yep. uh, with the winds we were having and you know we were cruising pretty economy so you know 85 uh, true and it takes close to three hours and it wasn't uncomfortable at all. Um, yeah. And it's uh, it's it's very doable. It's a lot quicker than the car and a lot more fun as well. Oh, yeah. You see it much more. <laughs> but they're quite a sleek-looking design too. Having a look here, at, uh, what's this one? A Sportstar SL that I'm yeah, looking at on my screen one. now. It looks a bit bit uh, slicker than, than mine does. Uh, very smooth. Uh, it's the modern design too that, um, you know, really, you know, at first glance, you might be forgiven for thinking, you know, mistaking it for a, a VH-registered aircraft Really, I mean, a triple-bladed prop here. It's it's, it's quite a nice-looking machine. Very nice, actually. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, one of the reasons I chose to fly at, at Parafield, apart from that, you know, for where I was located in well, around Adelaide. Um, it's it's by far the closest uh, airfield, but uh, the sports are definitely had uh, an influence as well because I knew it was a, a larger plane that uh, would accommodate me quite well and uh, and still carry a bit. And I ended up, uh, I say it's mine now, and it is mine. It's actually the same plane that I, I, I learned in. And uh, at the near the end of my training, uh, the, the aircraft was owned by a, a private owner and, and just leased back to the school. That aircraft became for sale and uh, the school didn't didn't want to see it go and uh, i've been saying for a while well, the, the only way that i can justify owning my own aircraft is if i can you know lease it back to a school and have some other people pay for it as well and uh well, lo and behold that's that's exactly what rolled into my lap um, yeah. so I, I decided to uh, to buy the aircraft it was it was mine just about a week before i actually took my test flight um <laughs> uh, so i did my test flight in my own airplane and nice. Uh, nice. Yep, and it's uh, it's it's just fantastic because I uh, it 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 gets a few hours up, although you know it's been pretty slow, of course, with the, the winter weather that we've been having. Uh, but it's it's got good availability for myself to just take it out for a couple of hours during the during the weekend, or uh, even taking away for a full weekend without actually getting in the way of uh, too many uh, paying customers, so to speak. That's actually a pretty good segue into how are you finding. But you you own it. You're doing the leaseback um, operation. How how's that working out for you? Are, you? are you able to tell us, like financial wise, is it is it making a big difference to you to own it? Um, I, I'd have you hit Nirvana and it's actually paying its own way. You know? um, I don't think it's quite paying its own way yet. It's it's sort of breaking even at the moment. But of course, I need to build up some cash reserves for when I need to. Uh, when you do get bigger maintenance, or when mm-hmm. you know, next year's insurance bill come, comes in. But that said, I've, I've owned it since about since May, so going right into winter. 
um, yeah. and you just get a lot less hours on it. You get, you see, you, you look at the booking sheet, and it's got just as many bookings, but at the end of the month, it just doesn't make the same kind of hours. Yeah, um, so they're trying, it's, but they can't. Yeah, exactly. It's a very seasonal thing, so it's it's working out quite well. Of course, I I have to pay for it when I use it myself as well. The comp because the the plane is you know is it's owned by a company that I, that I set yeah. up just to keep it separate, and of course, otherwise paying using it myself would be a, a fringe benefit tech. So yep. I, I I charge myself a rate for it. Um, it's it's interesting because there's a lot of people doing it, and no one that I've known has actually ever been audited. So nobody really knows what the correct way of doing it is. But I'm just doing what everyone else does. That we we've set a a rate of uh, what we perceive to be the actual running cost. Yep. of the aircraft, so fuel and maintenance, and uh, that's what I charge myself, which of course is uh, is a fair bit less than the uh, the normal hire rate, which would include the fact that you've you spend a hundred thousand dollars buying an aircraft and you need to pay it off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in, th- in that regards, it's working out. It's working out. Well, my goal really is, uh, even if I have to put more money into the company and up my rate myself, as as long as I'm paying less than I would be for if if I just hired it, if someone else owned it, then yeah. I'm I'm coming out ahead, and and eventually five, six, seven years, it will be paid off, and I will have a nice asset. So uh, at that point, it uh, it's it's definitely a longer term thing. You mentioned maintenance there, Baz. Um, maybe you could describe the maintenance regime for recreational aircraft such as this. Uh, for instance, are the standards uh, as uh, strict as they would be for a normal VH registered aircraft, uh, or is it, is it cheaper to maintain, perhaps? on par with other aircraft? It's definitely cheaper. First of all, the, the, the parts are cheaper. I mean, uh, uh, the same little connection pipe for the exhaust for a Cessna will cost four times as much as it costs for a Rotex. And there's no real difference between the parts. Except um, for the paperwork. Except for the paperwork. Um, secondly, you don't have to be uh, a lame, uh, is it, a licensed aircraft maintenance engineer uh, to sign off on these things. Uh, there is a, a, a different uh, standard in recreational aviation, which is called a uh, you got a level one and a level two maintenance. Level one is basically you. You can do it if it's your aircraft and you fly it because mine is used for training uh, a, a level two has to do it which usually means someone who has a lot of experience maybe worked as an uh, aircraft maintenance engineer or uh, has, has worked a lot with them. Um, so in my case, we've got the uh, the owner of the of the school uh, who does a lot of the maintenance on on the plane and for uh, and gets help from the uh, the local maintenance engineer if there's uh, uh, things that that he can't handle yeah. and that that saves that saves a lot of money. Do you, hmm. do you have have you encountered any issues with because you've got the Rotax engine, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how how are they for maintenance in the long term? Um, any part like long way down the tracks are the bits where to do something you've got to take the whole damn engine out and put a new one in or or do a major re- overhaul on it or things like that. Uh, yes, you do have to. There is a uh, uh, the TBO. The time between overalls on the Rotex is uh, now set to 1,500 hours. Yeah. Uh, but the overall cost is again, you know, a lot lower than if you would have a Lycoming that's in a in a VH registered aircraft. So I think okay. people are talking about overall cost. Ex- expect maybe seven, eight thousand dollars on a on a Rotex. Um, and sometimes a lot less. There's also a lot of people who let it go on condition, just with more uh, inspections. Yep. Um, and people have been running their Rotex that way to you know twice the TBO. Yeah, looking uh, at looking at what's in the oil when you change the filter and things like that, sending it off for analysis, that kind of thing. Exactly. And uh, when you when you do the inspection, take it up, take it apart, and, and measure uh, the wear 
on the cylinders yep. and cylinder heads, and uh, they they tend to work uh, longer than uh, you know than the, the TBO. And it's a, I mean, it's been going for a while, but not as long as the as the, the Lycoming. So they're they're still every few years they're figuring out that they can actually run longer than 1500, or they started at 1000, then 1200, then 1500. I think some of the newer models they're going close to 2000 now. Okay. Um, so they're having a lot of lot of uh, you know faith in the reliability uh, of of that engine. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, that that is a that is like people talk about the longevity, the longevity, how long these aircraft are going to be around because, like the older metal aircraft, the Cessnas and so on, they're 20 to 40 years old. Uh, the old Cessnas and Pipers and things like that, and they're still soldering on. You've got to replace bits and all that kind of stuff, but they're hanging together and on they go, although a number of these are now starting to really reach the end of the road without some really major mods. But what's what's the indication for the, the expected lifespan of a Technum and things like that? Because you know, no one's really had one that long. No, it, it, yeah, it remains to be seen the... Uh, the the airframe life on the Sportstar is 12,000 hours. That's what they've said of that now. And the Sportstar is actually quite a well-built aircraft when that all the joints, because it's an all-metal aircraft, all the joints are both bonded and riveted. So there's, there's okay. very little chance of, uh, of water seeping in there and, and corroding out your uh, corroding the joints. Other aircraft, don't know. I mean, uh, an aircraft that, uh, well, mine is hangered, but I wouldn't leave a metal aircraft, uh, especially yeah. a new one out in the rain, really. And... Uh, but I think the the, the plastic they call them plastic fantastics, uh, you know, like <laughs> like the Jabiru. There, uh, there's nothing that can rust about those things. Um, so unless there's something structurally wrong with the uh, with the, the the materials they use, and there's no indication that there is, uh, I don't see why those airframes shouldn't be around longer than the uh, you know than the 40 year old Cessnas, and possibly even uh, the airframe still being the same, but you know completely uh, a lot of other parts uh, replaced on it yeah no that is that is classic i mean they call the airbus as the plastic fantastics as well so it's yeah. it's <laughs> a good company but yeah uh, one one last big question on the raos thing that's pretty important uh, are you going to go to netfly in april next year i'm not sure yet i really want to go one of these years but um, you know i'm pretty busy at the moment so i'm gonna to have to see yeah. uh, how it goes and uh, i'd really i'd really like to make it out there one day especially uh, you know i always, uh, always wanted to go to tomorrow where it's going to be now mm-hmm. from, from next yep. year for the next three years because they've got a oh, a reasonably nice aviation museum i hear uh, um, pretty damn good oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so that's a good reason to go there so now now i've got two reasons to go to uh, tomorrow so I, I definitely will do that if, if not this year, then uh, I'll, I'll strive to do it uh, do it next year. And in the meantime, uh, just going to do some more trips. We're uh, we're getting a lot of people here around Adelaide now together, especially you know based based around the, the school that you know I learned. Yeah. But we're really getting a group together of people who just want to go out flying for fun uh, in all sorts of aircraft. We've got uh, excellent anything from my sports start to uh, you know, some of the hired Cessnas to uh, a Yak and a, a helicopter and what my friends. <laughs> Based at Oldinga, he's got this fantastic uh, uh, home-built uh, mini cab, you know, 1940s uh, design. Uh, that that's recreational aircraft. He flies that around, and it's a fantastic little uh, thing. You know, he, he bought that for I think about thirty-five thousand dollars. 
it's a well-proven design. It's even got a uh, Continental uh, O200 at the, up front, wow. so uh, uh, you know a very reliable engine. He saved on some luxuries because he doesn't have an electrical system. He, he hand swings the prop, and he has oh. a battery for his radio. <laughs> uh, uh, other than that, it's uh, it's uh, it's a you know that's the kind of flying you can do, and he's, it's a great performing aircraft, and uh, for uh, for very little uh, little money. Uh, and that's what, uh, what recreational is is all about. Yep. And another good uh, thing I wanted to say about it is that uh, you actually got a really good path to going to uh, your full private license, which is what I'll be doing uh, probably within the next year as well, because there there are occasions where I do want to take the four, the four seater Cessna out. And uh, if you've got uh, uh, if you if you've done your recreational training, you've got your your cross country endorsement, you've done all that. There really isn't a lot extra you need to do to get your PPL. Probably. Uh, well, of course, the, the PPL theory exam uh, is one. You need to do a few hours of instrument flying, which is required for the private license, and uh, just getting used to the aircraft. And uh, then, of course, uh, convince uh, the testing officer that uh, you are actually safe to fly. But a lot of the people, especially who train at organizations that, that I have, who, you know, who train GA and recreational, you might be looking at, at five hours. And so the first, say, 40 hours of your training, you're paying recreational rates. And only for the last five hours, you're paying the full uh, GA rates, which you know, saves yep. you thousands of dollars. Oh, yeah. That's an, that's an excellent marketing point for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and if, you, if you pick a school that does GA already, and uh, especially if you from the beginning, you indicate that that's your plan, then, yeah, it, it's just seamless. Yep. Cool. And so, Baz, as we ran out this uh, really fascinating discussion here, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, there's a couple of websites so uh, you could point us to for people, um, maybe even such as myself now, who are looking at uh, <laughs> yep. going uh, going down the path of recreational aviation. Could you uh, give us those websites again, perhaps? Definitely. So there's the, uh, the, the website of Recreational Aviation Australia itself. Uh, which is uh, raa.asn.au, and of course, if you just type in recreational uh, aviation Australia, you'll find it in uh, in the Google. They have an excellent magazine which comes out monthly, which is uh, available in uh, in all good news agents, which is called the Recreational Flying Magazine. It's it's got uh, interesting articles about people's uh, experience uh, in flying places. Uh, test reports of planes. It's got listings of clubs and uh, training facilities. And then you know a bit of trivia. Actually, there's uh, there's more registered training facilities for recreational now than there is for GA. Uh, That's I'm not, interesting. I'm not going to say that there's more people training recreational, just uh, because you don't know how big the, all these organisations yeah. are. There'd be a fair few that are just one-man shows. But uh, it's it's definitely the fastest-growing part of uh, let's call it private aviation. Uh, in in Australia, um, yeah, but I, I really believe that uh, with particularly with the price advantage there, that's uh, only going to keep growing. Yeah, exactly. You know, very very quickly. And there's uh, there's one fantastic resource uh, in Australia, which is a website called recreationalflying.org, and that is a it's a foreign website, and uh, there's thousands of uh, recreational pilots on there, very helpful and uh, just a, just a very good resource. Um, so find that and uh, just you know ask ask away. There's a there's always lots of people who can give you uh, great advice. Cool. Thanks for all that. That's and of course, uh, uh, great links. And, and of course, just go flying. You know, call your local school. Uh, <laughs> find out what your local school is and uh, say you want to come and uh, have your have your first lesson. And uh, they can tell you what uh, all the all the procedures are. That's one thing I wanted to say. If people haven't looked into this at all, if you want a full recreational license um, with uh, passenger endorsement and cross-country endorsement so you can go wherever you like. Uh, probably look about, depending on where you train, somewhere between six to 8000 for your training 
which you know is probably uh, less than half of what you'd expect to uh, to pay for uh, GA training. So it's it's very uh, affordable in that respect, and and lots of people uh, also like I did, you know, train one hour a week, one one hour every other week, and within a year you're uh, you're done, and you you spread the cost that way, and uh, you can start hiring aircraft or, or buy your own, and uh, and uh, jo- join in the fun. That's pretty good. That's fantastic, Baz. We really thank you again for uh, staying up this late and uh, having this uh, wonderful conversation about recreational aviation. And we certainly hope that you'll come and join us again on the podcast sometime. Oh, absolutely. If you've got any more uh, roundtable uh, discussions, it's absolutely uh, my pleasure. I-, I love this stuff. I'm really uh, getting uh, involved in it here because uh, this is what I want to do, meet meet people. It's been a great way for me to meet new people, You know, be cool. new to the country. Uh, make new friends and uh, just uh, have a lot of uh, fun aviating along the way. Excellent. Excellent. And folks, if you've got any questions uh, about recreational aviation that you'd like to uh, pass along to Baz, you can contact us here. It's uh, planecrazydownunder at gmail.com and we'll pass those along to Baz and I'm sure he will uh, give you a very detailed answer. Indeed. Okay, so uh, Grant, what a fascinating uh, roundtable discussion that was with Baz. It was uh, really great to meet him and um, great that we finally managed to get him on the show. We've been uh, meaning to do that for several episodes now and um, he's going to uh, do some ongoing reports for us in the future, which is uh, which is fantastic. Yeah, we're always welcome to that. If uh, you're able to put something together that uh, could be of interest to other people listening to this podcast, uh, feel free to send it in and uh, we'll chuck it on the show, uh, provided it passes the cleanliness filter. <laughs> of course, astute listeners to that interview would probably notice that uh, Baz has actually had uh, quite some experience in the radio game, so uh, unlike myself, he actually sounds uh, quite professional in the way he presents it, so uh, there'll be some really uh, well-produced pieces, I'm sure. We look forward to receiving those in the weeks to come. Indeed. There you go, Baz. A bit of pressure, mate. And speaking, Grant, of MP3 clips that we've received this week, our good friend from the Airplane Geeks podcast and now co-chairing with us, David Vanderhoof, has sent us in our uh, weekly history segment. This Week in Aviation History, Australia Edition, with David Vanderhoof. Welcome to This Week in Aviation Down Under, Volume 1, Episode 2, September 27th through October 3rd. This is David Vanderhoof, your Airplane Geeks historian, code-sharing for Plane Crazy Down Under. On September 27, 1956, Australia was nuked by Great Britain four times. Operation Buffalo commenced at Baralinga, Australia. The operation consisted of testing four fission bombs, codenamed One Tree, Marku, Kite, and Breakaway. One Tree and Breakaway were exploded from towers, Marku was exploded at ground level, and Kite was released by the Royal Air Force Vickers Valent B-1, call sign WZ-366, bomber of 49 Squadron. It was released from a height of 30,000 feet, 9,144 meters. This was the first launching of a British atomic weapon from an aircraft. Kite was a Blue Danube bomb with a 3,000-3-ton kiloton warhead, so much for being part of the Commonwealth, at least us here up in the U.S. 
U.S. explode our bombs on our own property. Also this week, we have one other additional thing, which is first flight. Uh, the first flight that occurred that would be relevant would be a de Havilland DH-100 vampire. First flew on September 30th, 1943. Um, if you go to www.vectorsite.net slash avvamp underscore 2.html talks about the Royal Australian Air Force flew them from 1946 to 1970. Wow, is that a run? RAAF gets their money's worth out of an air freight. Well, this has been David M. Vanderhoof, the Plain Crazy Down Under historian. Any comments, questions, or suggestions, please email me at airplanegeekhistorian at gmail.com. Or you can view me on Twitter at DM Vanderhoof. Thank you very much, guys, and we'll talk to you next week. Fantastic, David. Thanks very much for sending that in to us, and uh, we'll look forward to another segment next week. Uh, of course, uh, David's very busy with a house move at the moment, so we're not sure if we'll get another one from him next week. But, uh, yeah, what uh, David doesn't know about uh, airplane history probably isn't worth knowing. So uh, if you listen to his segment on the Airplane Geeks podcast, you'll already know that, and uh, we're really uh, thrilled that he uh, took the time to put that one together for us. Yeah, that was awesome, and uh, great to see he's finally got some intro music. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I thought that was appropriate for uh, a history segment. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, well, I used to play that kind of music, so I really enjoy it. And now, Grant, uh, let's move on to some new stories uh, for this week so that we can make this one of our regular episodes, as we intended at the start. Ah, yes, regularity. I've heard of that. <laughs> yeah, regularity. <laughs> Quick, take prunes. Of course, unless you've been living on another planet, uh, if, if you've been in this country, you would have known about the huge dust storm that uh, crossed over and uh, basically blanketed Sydney during the last week and managed to close their airport down. And in fact, it also managed to take out Brisbane Airport and uh, then crossed the Tasman and ended up over in New Zealand uh, just to uh, spread the wealth around. That's right. It uh, managed to go from South Australia, uh, as Baz said. Oh, that was probably something we caused. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it came out of South Australia and Western New South Wales, Western Queensland, uh, a whole lot of fields that were unplowed uh, due to the... Uh, the drought that we've been going through and a large storm came through and picked up all the surface soil and uh, turned it into dust and sent it straight across the eastern seaboard, covered Canberra and Sydney and then moved its way up uh, to uh, Brisbane and up to northern Queensland and also out across 1300 kilometres of ocean to dump a little bit on uh, Auckland as well. So pretty impressive what that which was managed to be done by uh, Mother Nature there. And, uh, of course, naturally the results were no aircraft going anywhere. Flights were diverting from Sydney to uh, Brisbane, Adelaide and uh, Melbourne. Melbourne experienced some problems with uh, high winds preventing use of both runways. So uh, that caused some delays getting all the extra aircraft in. And uh, then we ran out of gate space. So it, it got really interesting. Yeah, some really great shots on the news there of, at Melbourne Airport of um, multiple aircraft being stuck out on the taxiways and on the aprons there uh, with buses going in all directions and uh, portable stairs trying to uh, deplane passengers. So uh, as I said on the uh, spot on the airplane geeks, passengers, uh, boy, Grant, did I pick a bad day not to book a flight. Imagine being stuck at the airport out there watching all those planes come in. It would have been fantastic. (laughs) You and your camera. Yeah, Graham, well, I'll tell you what, I'd have been happy stuck out there with, it, with or without my camera, but uh, I'll tell you what, there were some passengers that uh, weren't quite so happy. We've just um, stuck here and they can't, don't know when um, you can land planes in Sydney, so we've just got to wait. Any, any idea how long that would be? They won't be landing till after two, they reckon, and it's now 20 past eight, so we've got a long wait. I'm actually planning to go back um, straight to the office after uh, being at an exhibition for a couple of days in Melbourne. I've now been advised by um, Connor staff that the airport in Sydney is closed and it looks like we're opening at about um, 2 o'clock, so pretty much throwing my uh, day into turmoil. 
turmoil indeed. I tell you what, I wonder when the next dust storm is going to go through. Can they predict that sort of thing with any uh, degree of accuracy, mate? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, honestly, I guess it just depends on that situation of high winds and a lot of uh, loose soil. So, yeah, maybe it is predictable. Yeah. Well, if it is, I'm going to make sure I book a flight at Melbourne. I'd love to be stuck there. <clears throat> anyway, uh, yeah, well, there were also a number of flights were uh, diverted across to Adelaide, I believe, as well. So um, uh, probably caused similar trouble over there as well, I'd say. Yeah, well, it's always fun when you get extra flights. But uh, speaking of uh, being stranded, that does segue nicely into uh, yet another uh, Tiger Airways issue. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> there it is, our friends at Tiger Airways. Our good friends at Tiger Airways. Gee whiz, Grant, they've been cancelling flights again. Yeah, they uh, they left a few hundred people stranded in Mackay uh, when one of their aircraft went unserviceable. Due to uh, They had to cancel flight uh, a flight from Mackay to Melbourne and the reciprocal flight back out of Melbourne due to technical issues with the aircraft. Uh, according to an article in the dailymercury.com.au by uh, Fallon Hudson, the, due to this uh, cancellation, chaos was caused at uh, Mackay Airport and uh, many passengers left, uh, left frustrated and angry when they were told that uh, after arriving for the 12.15 journey that it was cancelled. Many were told that they wouldn't be able to get a flight until uh, early the next week. So there were a lot of people getting very upset. Uh, eventually, Tiger wound up putting another aircraft on uh, to go and pick everyone up and bring them down. Now, Tiger Airways, as we've reported on this podcast in previous episodes, have been out in the media recently telling us all how, no, we've learned our lessons and we're not going down the Ryanair path. But, uh, you know, you've got to wonder when you're still reading stories like this, they're still up to their old tricks. You know, basically, oh, sorry, the flight's been cancelled. You know, uh, nick off and come back when we've got a flight for you. If you don't like it, well, tough luck. I find this just amazing. Uh, you know, when are they going to wake up to themselves? Air aircraft are going to go off. They've only got a very small fleet, six or seven aircraft. They need to have contingency plans for issues such as this. And if that means perhaps, uh, you know, uh, leasing an aircraft from somewhere else, I know that's going to take time to organise, but, you know, stranding people for up to a week, that's just mad. Yeah, well, further down in the article, they say that uh, eventually they did schedule an extra flight another day, a uh, day later, to... Uh, get everyone uh, on and uh, they were working hard to contact everyone um, offering them uh, rebookings for free on extra flights and uh, and so on so they are taking steps it's just yeah I think this this was a similar thing that Ausjet encountered when it was doing the business class flights between Sydney and Melbourne one of the uh, things that impacted them was they only had one or two aircraft. They couldn't offer a lot of flights. So whereas the business people flying with Qantas, oh, well, hey, my meeting's running late. Yeah, move. I'm already paying full fare. So, hey, move me off that flight and put me on the next flight. It's all cool. Tiger are running so tight, as you're saying, they don't have a lot of aircraft. As a result, they if something goes wrong, they can't pick up the slack. They can't say to people, oh, okay, we'll get you on the uh, aircraft leaving in two hours and the, the one leaving another two hours after that to spread the load. They don't have that flexibility. Uh, it's, it's bringing up a, an aspect of startup airlines that many people don't consider. And it's not that we don't want to see more airlines in this country. And, uh, you know, as I always say, you know, and it's, it's a well-known principle in business. Competition is good for the consumer. In this case, you know, have they spread themselves a bit too far and wide uh, given their small fleet? Um, they're going to have technical issues. When they're operating a small fleet over the, the large amount of uh, mileage every, every day that they've got to cover, the wear and tear on that aircraft is going to run up perhaps quicker than a, a larger airline. So, you know, like I say, really, you wonder why they don't have contingency plans in, in place. Uh, you know, maintenance, maintenance is going to continue to be an issue for them. Um, they, they need to uh, plan for that. 
when you're a smaller company going through growth, there's so much going on, it's really hard to cover everything. And quite often you're busy, you're putting out this fire and if you're lucky, you're able to assess the root cause and take steps to make sure that fire doesn't go. But meanwhile, there's another fire from another cause has come up and then you've got to, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to cover all the bases at first when you're doing a startup on a shoestring. Yep, that's very true. So uh, as usual, we will um, keep an eye on our friends at Tiger Airways, if they are indeed our friends. If they ever listen to this podcast, they probably hate us. <laughs> yeah, they may not be too happy with us. Yeah, Tiger oh. Airways, come on, guys, you've got to lift your game here. You really need to lift your game if, you, if you're going to be uh, running to these to these places. Perhaps they need to shrink their route network temporarily to uh, get around these problems. You know, they, they, they're breaking into the uh, Melbourne-Sydney corridor. Yep. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be more... You would think there's probably more to be made more quickly by just operating on, on uh, higher volume routes such as those rather than operating to uh, smaller airports such as Mackay in the short term at least. True, true. But uh, the diversity that you need to grow your network is by having those extra routes um, grow your passenger base. So it's a, it's a very fine line to walk. Our next story this week deals with uh, former Qantas Chief Executive Jeff Dixon. Uh, it's been reported in uh, various news sources during the week that he took a rather sizable $11 million payout after he left Qantas uh, last year. That's a big chunk of money. That's a big chunk of money, and that's certainly not going to go down well with uh, many of the, uh, well, not only employees, but industry groups and unions in particular. Uh, Jeff Dixon uh, had, shall we say, a rather terse or tense <laughs> relationship <laughs> with industry groups. And uh, uh, yeah. to see him walking away with this much money, particularly at a time now where Qantas is uh, struggling along with every other airline in the world because of the uh, economic climate, um, that does seem like a heck of a lot of money for the guy to be walking away with. Well, that $11 million represents almost as much as he made in the previous year, and he was paid that for the last nine months of his service. So, yeah, in nine months he made almost a whole year's income. And this is despite the... Uh, company's share price tanking, the world having a global financial crisis and all that kind of stuff. That's It's one heck of a parachute to go out with. And you're right, it has naffed off a lot of people. You've got the uh, the crew, the technical crew, the cabin crew, maintenance and so on, who have all been told to tighten their belts and do things tighter and take one for the company and so on. And then you find out that Dixon gets this and a number of the uh, other senior management or at least the board of directors were getting a significant amount paid to them uh it just it goes beyond belief it really does and at these days it's it's actions like this that just beg the government to step in and start legislating about ceo pay and it's it's really ridiculous that the government has to get involved like this i i don't know what happened to shareholder power or things like that because you know it's 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 short-sighted package specifications where where you give a CEO their money based on the share price. Well, they're going to do everything they can to pump that share price up, but after they've gone, everything collapses. So you've, you've really got to think. I think we're going to see a change in the way um, executives across the board and many organizations are paid in terms of what do you really want? You want long-term sustainable corporations. So... Don't pay them a heck of a lot now. Pay them a heck of a lot in five years when the company's still going well. Sorry. Yeah, I think the, the thing is with uh, Jeff Dixon too, he came into the uh, into the industry and into Qantas uh, as a businessman rather than an airline guy. So he, he sort of approached it, I guess, from precisely that angle where he, you know, he's not there so much to, uh, whilst I'm sure he did have his own sort of pride in the way the airline was running, for him, 
the greatest amount of pride was uh, laid in how much return he could get for the shareholders. He yeah. always, he, you know, and it was a very bumpy ride during his tenure. I mean, uh, the Pilot Union in particular and the, the Lammies, uh, Steve Pervinus, the uh, Federal Secretary of the Australian Licensed Aircraft Engineers Association, uh, who uh, was in a quite a protracted dispute with Qantas to achieve a 10% wage increase last year, uh, he's quoted as saying his members are outraged by the executive salaries and you, you can understand why. He yeah. says, he says uh, that his members probably see the levels of executive remuneration at Qantas is quite obscene, particularly when the price, when the share price is plummeting. And what we're seeing is things such as the apprentice training schools being closed down and the outsourcing of more and more aircraft work overseas. Now, that's that's yeah, that's a particularly huge issue. If Dixon had had his way, there probably would be very little, if any, maintenance on Qantas aircraft in this country. Yep, and these are all things that that add up to general frustration and anger with yes people at the higher levels have more responsibility but technically everyone's equal you know dixon can go and make all these great deals but if the uh, cabin crew are naffed off you're going to have terrible service and everyone's going to desert the airline which oh that's what's happening people are leaving Qantas because they're refusing to pay you used to be able to uh, you used to pay a premium for Qantas uh, because they had great service and great reliability and, and safety and so on. And over the last five years to 10 years, we've watched that disappear. And now you're being asked to pay high price for Qantas, but they're just like every other airline. In fact, as we saw with some of those uh, surveys coming back, they're only a few uh, percentage points ahead of Jetstar in terms of satisfaction from their customers and they're supposed to be a full service airline they should be 20 30 percent ahead in terms of satisfaction and if you're a mainline Qantas worker, I mean, you're standing here watching a progressively or an increasing amount of work being pushed from the mainline side across to Jetstar, where the arrangements are very, very different. Uh, you know, they have yep. a lot of uh, outsourced work there, and um, you know, a lot probably a lot more maintenance is being done overseas on Jetstar aircraft. That that'd be a certainty. And and you know, that Jetstar is really the model, uh, Jeff Dixon's model for how he would like to have run the entire airline. And I'm sure that if he could have got that through somehow, that perhaps Jetstar would never have existed perhaps uh, just Qantas would have been run as Jetstar has been running if he'd had his way but uh, Jeff Dixon was never one to be apologetic and um, for his <laughs> management style and here's a very famous quote from him and I'm sorry I don't apologize and I'm sure he doesn't apologize now <laughs> laughing all the way to the bank <laughs> so uh, I guess if I was Alan Joyce just to sum up there if I was Alan Joyce the uh, current man s- sitting in the chair there at Qantas uh, he's probably keeping an interested eye on that uh, that paid and uh, wondering just how much he might get when it's his time to move on yeah well things may have changed by then and he may not get what he thinks he's going to get okay and just to uh, round it out this week a few stories from the world of defense uh, and a sort of an interesting uh, start to that report this week and uh, the skies of townsville were recently filled with sounds such as these lovely sounds and those sounds this week were generated by none other than the United States Air Force Thunderbirds as they put on a uh, one of their usual thrilling flight displays for the uh, locals up there. Yep and they're using the new Block 52 F-16s with the bigger engines so you get even more roar that pe- makes people like us go Mm. <laughs> I've actually, I don't know whether you have, Grant, I've had the privilege of seeing them live uh, many, many years ago and um, they not only do they put on a fantastic 
aerial display, the um, the precision that they use on their ground display as the aircraft uh, come in and come out, the uh, the precision salutes, the marching around, really, really impressive stuff. It's always fun to watch. If you uh, haven't seen it, folks, uh, jump onto YouTube there and uh, have a look at some of the routines that they do there. It's uh, really, really fun to watch. Yeah, no, it is good. And uh, yeah, I saw them when uh, they were opening the then new runway and updates for the Brisbane airport. That would have been back in the mid-80s. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a very hot day on the tarmac. Uh, a lot of blue skies, white concrete and aircraft with the Thunderbirds doing their show. And yeah, the whole precision startup routine was rather amusing to watch. One, one thing I've got to say, having seen the Thunderbirds, the Blue Angels, um, I've seen video footage of some of the other shows and I've watched the roulettes a number of times. And there's something that I think the um, the Yanks have, and I don't know if it's because they've got more aircraft, more punch, I'm not sure, but when they're doing their show, there's almost never a quiet moment. For instance, with the roulettes, you'll be watching them, and they'll go off and do something, and then they'll be regrouping and coming back and doing something else and regrouping and coming back and doing something else. And even with their soloists, there's still that level of regrouping going on, whereas with the American shows from the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels, there's never a moment where you're wondering what's going on. You're, there's always something happening. As soon as the main formation's gone out, a soloist is coming through, or both of them doing opposing passes or inverted passes, things like that. It, it's There's always something happening. And that's really quite impressive. You're, you're not sitting there waiting for them to regroup. I guess that's probably a, a function of the aircraft that they have. I mean, they're flying F-16s. You know, the Blue Angels are flying F-A-18s. The Red Arrows are flying their uh, their Hawk jets. Um, the Roulettes, and of course, let's you know, we don't want to downplay the Roulettes. Um, you know, they're obviously in, incredibly skilled pilots in their own right. But uh, since they uh, lost their Mackie jets uh, back in the late 80s or early 90s, whenever that was, they've been stuck in PC-9s, which are fantastic aircraft, of course, but they're slower and quieter quieter and um, maybe that's a, a fact you know the the uh, the jets can get around and get back to uh, show center a lot quicker than the um, yeah than the pc9s which are a bit slower that is a, that, i guess that is a factor in it that's a good point because yeah even with the use of the soloists there's still gaps in their routine whereas the american one doesn't have that many gaps yeah i was just looking there to see where the uh where the uh, t-birds are off to next but it doesn't actually say in this article so uh, if anybody can let us know and hopefully i don't know whether they're doing any other um displays here in in australia but uh yeah if they are we'll certainly let you know hopefully before uh, the next episode's released and um if you get the chance to get out and see them do yourselves a favor it's uh, it's a fantastic show they put on really really great stuff uh, Kuala Lumpur, October 3rd, Bangkok, October 11th. So, okay. yeah, that's it. They've just come to Townsville and then they're bouncing out again. It's a long way to come for one show, but anyhow. Yeah. Okay. Well, and speaking of things that are pretty spectacular to watch, uh, we've got a nice segue here into something else that's military and related to Australia. Boeing's going to be testing the Wedgetail Airborne Early Warning System. Uh, the seven, modified 737 will be uh, flying over Hood Canal and testing the flare system. Uh, so it's going to be followed by a chase aircraft that will be observing the flares popping out of the aircraft and verifying that they're working well. So yeah, that would be rather spectacular to watch. A uh, Boeing 737, the Wedgetail, aka the Toaster, flying along and uh, pumping out flares. Wouldn't yeah. Be, yeah, I hope they put some footage up of that. It says here they're going to have seven flights between uh, this Monday and October the 15th uh, to test mm-hmm. the self-protection system of the Wedgetail Airborne Early Warning and Control, or AWACS aircraft. Uh, yep. The chase plane is going to be a T-33, and that will videotape the test for later analysis, and, uh, you know, hopefully they'll and put it up on YouTube for us to analyse. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and they'll direct load it to YouTube, yeah. <laughs> 
I was actually reading an interesting article in Australian Aviation uh, uh, where they were talking about um, how there's so many more military derivatives of the 737 airframe coming out now, and they're actually making one. I think they're calling it a P-8, which is yes. uh, a replacement, a basically a, a maritime surveillance aircraft. That's, that's correct. Yeah, for the um, to replace the uh, P threes. So yep, it's uh, a, it's a seven three seven known as the P eight A Poseidon. It's doing its first flights at the moment. Uh, they're doing all the conversions and shakeouts of all the equipment. Uh, Australia is considering buying a few of those, a combination with a UAV such as a Global Hawk to provide long term loitering, and the P eights to do the manned versions because sometimes you just got to have a human on site they've done a lot of tests where there was some skepticism and resistance to having a uh, a jet engine at low level in a commercial airliner kind of body uh the p3 orion having of course been a commercial airliner that was it was the lockheed electra that was converted to become the sub hunter the Orion. then the p8 they converted 737 well they put it through its paces and the navy pilots were throwing it around and going from low level high speed low level loitering going up and down following typical maritime search and hunting profiles and they were pretty impressed with it yeah well, wouldn't that be something else to see uh, down here on local shores with uh, royal australian air force randalls on it uh, one of these days uh, one in- one interesting point that they did make though which i think probably bears uh, some discussion uh, maybe for future episodes with so many 737s already in service in the commercial world and uh, now uh, an increasing number of them going into service in the military sphere um, there was some there is some concern around that uh, you know should the um, something disastrous happen and they crash it's going to make it uh, perhaps a little difficult to identify uh, the aircraft should they go missing <laughs> we're looking for a 737 oh look there's one. Oh, there's one no but it was painted gray oh right <laughs> <laughs> the modifications to the well with with the 737 we will of course here with the australian military we'll have the uh, wedge tail aka the toaster we'll have the potentially if it all goes ahead We'll have the Poseidon, and, and of course we have the um, BBJ for VIP flights. Yes, the uh, the good old Aussie Air Force one. It's um, a much more stylish looking machine than the one it replaced. That's for sure. The uh, venerable uh, 707, which was <laughs> extremely old and uh, almost embarrassing. In fact, the old 707, here's an interesting point, was so loud and so noisy with its old engines that it couldn't land in a lot of airports around the world because of uh, noise abatement uh, procedures. Correct. It violated a few of the uh, ICAO noise limitation levels. Uh, it was also pretty spectacular to watch them coming in and out at Avalon uh, you just you'd, you'd hear the um, the call sign come across I think it was Windsor and uh, you'd be looking out in the distance and you'd see the black smudge and the black smudge would get bigger and the black smudge would get bigger and finally you'd see a dot at the top of the black smudge and you'd realize the dot was the aircraft and the smudge was all the uh, smoke coming off the engines <laughs> so of course uh, the uh, the former uh, government the former Australian Federal Administration uh, ordered uh, this jet and actually copped a lot of uh, flack from the uh, then opposition leader who's now our Prime Minister but uh, I noticed that that Prime Minister is probably making far more use of that airplane than the previous Prime Minister ever did so uh, my my how things change uh, yeah that, welcome to politics mate yes let's not yeah. go off on ranting about that oh no because i'll get shot <laughs> I, I, i'm i'm pretty i'm actually no i'm pretty balanced i'm pretty even i think they're all bums <laughs> yeah, there you go. it doesn't matter which party they're from <laughs> i'm nasty like that and our final story this week should begin, Grant, with the uh, with the Phonetics Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Yep, thanks, Court. You really set up a good idea. We're definitely going to run with it if uh, if we can. And that's uh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. This article had me really saying it a lot. It's from the ABC News, and it's 
Japan's All Nippon Airways is asking its passengers to go to the toilet before boarding so it can reduce aircraft weight. They're serious. They are... They're doing an experiment to cut carbon dioxide emissions, and it's a one-month experience starting now. And on 42 international and domestic flights, staff near boarding gates will be asking passengers waiting for flights to go and use the restroom in the hopes that this will reduce the weight of the aircraft and cut nearly five tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions from flights. Good Lord, give me a break. Have this one been taken over by Ryanair, perhaps? I don't know, man, but, uh, you know, when you think about it, three, four hundred people... Uh, that might actually add up to a ton. My goodness. If you wanted to cut down on uh, carbon dioxide emissions, perhaps um, cutting down the this sort of rhetoric from greenies and people that keep talking this way would uh, probably make a far greater <laughs> contribution to global warming. Oh, all the, uh, the, the fun part of uh, have you... You know, the, the flyers that get printed out saying, you know, reduce waste paper. Hmm, okay. <sighs> Good Lord. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Let's just leave that one there for this week, Grant. That's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and just remember, go to the loo before you fly. And so on that uh, rather uh, cheery note, uh, that's about everything we have for you this week on Playing Crazy Down Under. Our sound effects every week come to you courtesy of soundsnap.com. Our theme music track is called You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Our website is www.playingcrazydownunder.com. You can visit our fan page on Facebook. And Grant, what's our Twitter handle? Our Twitter handle is PCDU. How simple can we get? So there you go. Visit the website, please, folks. You'll find our links there to all our articles that we've used this week. There's also a button there that you can click on to make a uh, contribution financially. If you'd like to support us in what we're doing here, we'd certainly appreciate that. And also, please leave us some feedback. Feedback, good or bad, we appreciate it all. If uh, you can keep us honest and uh, send through some suggestions for things you'd like to hear on the podcast, uh, we're always looking for those and we'd certainly appreciate your input every little bit counts folks uh you can also find us online uh i'm falcon124 on twitter and i have my blog which is blog.flymefriendly.com i've got a lot of uh, articles and uh, gallery photos there and if you'd like to see a blog that hasn't been updated in ages you can check my blog out which is uh, www.ozflyer.com i'm also steve isher on twitter all one word cool i think that's pretty much a wrap mate we've had a pretty good episode today yep thanks very much again to uh, Bez Sheffers for uh, giving us that fascinating uh, discussion this week on recreational aviation. Uh, mate, I'm certainly going to go out uh, in the next couple of weeks and uh, check that scene out a bit more. Yeah, I think that's definitely a worthwhile option, mate. Uh, you're a little bit further ahead of me on being able to get back into the aviation. I've got a few things I've got to stabilise, but uh, yeah, uh, RAOs is on my definitely on my to-do list. So that's pretty much it, folks. Until next time, when you're cruising around the world of online aviation podcasts, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts. The kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www 
www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.